amazing people. Love getting to be a part of this staff. And um, my name is Carl Gully, and served in a host of different roles throughout the years. Right now, I serve as the U.S. Director. We have about 47 U.S. churches that we planted, and I help serve those churches through uh, through an office we call the Movement Support Office. And the Movement Support Office. Uh, is a group of us that just take care of a lot of the churches and international works around the world. So we decided to pull together this past December and do a little Christmas party. And we were at someone's house having a blast, going around, and everybody was saying, what is your favorite Christmas movie? So as you can imagine, the age-old debate of, is Die Hard a Christmas movie came up, all right? Is it or not? Okay, great. Then, I did not mean to, but I kind of sparked my own debate. Because instead of going for all the classics, you know, the Elf and the, you know, Polar Express and all that, I went for this one. Um, it's called, Ding! While You Were Sleeping. Anybody seen this one? I got a few, a few claps. That's great. Okay. Um, you may not think this was a, a Christmas movie, but it was set at Christmas. Thus, it's a Christmas movie. And we watch it every year at Christmas in our house. Thus, it's a Christmas movie. Okay. Now, this was made in 1995. Who was born after 1995 in this room? Mercy, mercy, mercy. So y'all get grace. I'm assuming that y'all do not know anything about this, this film. But this, the, the basic gist of this movie is, and I, I'm just gonna probably ruin it for you. So just if you were hoping to go see it, it was 30 years ago. You've had 30 years to see it. So I'm gonna spoil it for you. But you need to go meet Joe Jr. and learn about leaning and all those things. But but this movie is actually about a woman named Lucy. Lucy uh, doesn't have a, uh, she doesn't, her parents pass away. She has those siblings. And so she's kind of all on her, on her own in Chicago where she works at a kind of a train station where she takes tokens every day for people who are getting onto the train. And she builds a bit of a crush on one of her patrons named Peter that she has actually never met. But one day, Peter is assaulted on the tracks and he falls over and nobody's around because uh, it's around the Christmas season, and she runs on the tracks and saves his life. But he's in a coma, so he gets taken to the hospital where his large, hilarious family all descends. And this nurse, they all turn and they see Lucy, and they don't know who she is, and the nurse introduces Lucy as their son's fiance. Well, this shocks the family because they didn't know that their son was engaged. This shocks Lucy because they're not engaged. But she kind of gets swept up in all the emotion. And next thing you know, they're inviting her to Christmas dinner and they're taking Christmas pictures and, and she's getting Christmas presents from their family. And so now she's in a jam because if she comes clean, she feels like she's gonna hurt this family. But at the same time, if she comes clean, she will lose possibly the one thing she hasn't had in a long time that she's been desperate for, and that is family. So... Um, she does a pretty good job of hiding it all throughout the movie. Um, at one point, she is feeling kind of alone, so she goes up to the hospital. He's still in a coma. He hasn't come out, and she is sitting there having a one-way conversation, letting him know all about her. They're kind of getting to know each other. And she doesn't know that a family friend is listening at the window and hears her as she is bearing her soul to this man in a coma and says, have you ever been so alone that you would spend an evening in a hospital with a complete stranger in a coma. And the word begins to get out. But as, as, as families go, it doesn't, word just doesn't get out, it starts to get really messy. 
because she doesn't fall in love with Peter, she falls in love with Peter's brother. And in the process, we find that Peter actually already proposed to another woman. She was, uh, she was married, she was already married to another guy. I mean, in real life, this would take thousands of dollars in therapy and in legal fees. And we would be working for years and years. We'd put them in a life group. We'd send them to the Kings for deliverance. I mean, this would take forever. But in classic holiday fashion, I mean, I mean film fashion, they just make a couple little edits, scene change. And she's at her booth. The brother Jack comes up, proposes. The whole family is there. She says yes. And they ride off on the train while she says, I fell in love with him while Peter was sleeping. And it's, and it's over and, and everybody's just like, yes, Merry Christmas, you know? <laughs> and you just feel so good. Now, I love, I love this movie. Like I said, we watch it all the time as a family. We quote it all year long. But it's really a fascinating uh, diagnostic of the human condition. Because I think the reason everybody who watches this movie, all you pre-1995 people who actually have seen it, is because something in us all longs for family just like Lucy longed for it herself. And we also learned through this film, it doesn't come easily. And it's been lost on many. But this idea of family seems to play a vital role in what God has for all of us, both in our nuclear family and in, our, and in, our, in a spiritual setting case. I mean, we actually see this idea of family is a narrative all throughout the 66 books of the Bible. Now, Jimmy is away this week because he's on a birthday trip. He turns 60 next week. And so you can wish him happy birthday. He's gone. In honor of him, I'm going to go back to Genesis because he would love that, okay? So Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 is where we start to see some rumblings of this human condition I'm talking about. When the Lord God said, it's not good that the man, what's his name? Adam, should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So therefore now he takes from Adam and he creates this woman. Her name is Eve. And now Adam and Eve are, are coming together. And basically we are witnessing an individual become a part of a covenant. And that marriage covenant then, they begin to build a family and a family comes forth and, and comes about. And since that time, every family from that moment on has been touched by beauty and dysfunction and sin at some level. But that first family, it seems, was in some way a metaphor for the larger spiritual family of God that we call the church. And the Bible uses this language of family to explain what it's like to be adopted into God's household when we believe in Jesus Christ. So this very first family seems to communicate a very stunning truth, and this is kind of our, our point for this series, that my entrance into God's kingdom is also an invitation to a spiritual family. You are no longer alone, and he felt like you needed a suitable helper to be your partner. Therefore, can we all read this together? Three, two, one. My entrance into God's kingdom is also an invitation to a spiritual family. And with that in mind, we're launching into this new series called uh, Spiritual Family. Because when we talk about family, this is supposed to be an awe-inspiring community of love that when it's working right, and that is a pivotal phrase. When it is working right, there's nothing like it. And I'm talking about both your family, that, that immediate or extended family that everyone there did not choose each other. We all just landed in the same home, but we are now influenced more by those behaviors and ideas and 
um, thoughts and actions than we will anywhere else. And as we get older, we'll have to choose if we actually want to continue to love and like these people. But then there's also our spiritual family. You didn't choose them either. When people say, what's the hardest part about preaching? I'm saying, I say, well, everybody fell in love with this man named Jesus, showed up in church and met me. <laughs> so you sold, signed up for him, you got me. And so we now are being put together by the blood of Jesus into living stones being built into one home. And so that's what these, this spiritual family conversation is all about, how both of these play together. And I believe that spiritual family has never been more needed. Because just like Lucy in the movie, loneliness is becoming a part of the fabric of our society at a rate that's really hard to fathom. And I'm not just saying people just walking alone in their rooms, by the, in the dark, quiet, alone. I'm saying you can be in the middle of a family and be alone. You can have roommates and be alone. You can be in a life group and be in alone. And you can have community or be married and still be going, does anybody get me? Do you see me? Am I truly loved? I know you say that as a Christian, love you, love you, but like, you don't really know me. Am I okay and where do I belong? And if you think I'm just making this up to create some emotion in this sermon, go Google books about social relationships in America today and see what comes up. Maybe just like cap it at 2018. Here's like first three titles that I found. Lost Connections, The Crisis of Connection, The Lonely Century. Haven't read them, I don't recommend them. I'm just saying they're titles that kind of make the point of what I'm, I'm talking about, which it just kind of make, begs the point that it seems like the thing we want most in our life is relationships, and the thing we stink at most in life is relationships. Again, may not be your story, but it seems to be the case for many. Can you just permit a few uh, statistics here that have been kind of staggering to me? First of all, the percentage of Americans who said they have no close friends quadrupled between 1990 and 2020. That, that's staggering to me. 36% of Americans reported that they felt lonely frequently or almost all of the time, including 61% of young adults and 51% of young mothers, which God bless all young mothers. That was not shocking to me at all. Y'all are in an uh, incredible season of life. But think about this. When, we, when Americans were just asked about how much time they spend with friends, we begin to see a pattern that we are spending more and more time alone. FOMO does not define us. We are not afraid of missing out. We would like to miss out. And so in 2013, the average American spent six and a half hours a week with friends. Watch this decline. 2019, four hours a week. By the, end, by the time the pandemic was kind of easing up, in 2021, uh, 2.75 hours a week. This is a 58% decline just since 2013. As I was reading all these fascinating studies, there was a, another study that was it was, ran kind of parallel. It was a general survey to Americans that was basically asking about the overall happiness of Americans. And it said that between 1990 and 2018, the share of Americans who put themselves in the lowest happiness category increased by more than 50%. So I just wonder if it's coincidence that the Holy Spirit inspires the writers of Scripture to consistently use the language of family in a way that would be canonized that we'd all be reading it millennia later. Like, for example, the phrase brothers and sisters in Scripture, from what I saw, was used is used 124 times. Or the Lord's people, used 29 times. You could do a whole study about the phrase one another. 
love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, 59 times. So you just see these consistent refrains of being adopted into God's family, the bride of Christ, the family of God. I mean, it's just all throughout the pages of scripture, both in beauty and in brokenness. And those get married in one of my favorite passages in the scriptures, in Psalm 68, five and six, it says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. This is how God is describing himself. Like, you'll know who I am? I set the lonely in families. I lead out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Not everybody's gonna be able to experience this, but he's like, but I'm a father, that's what I do. And you know what I do? I defend widows. Meaning, you just really wanna hack off God? Go mess with a widow. I mean, there's times, I don't, I, this is kind of a stereotypical thing, so I know there's a lot of widows, and y'all drive really fast. I've just not met you. And so when I'm driving up next to someone and they're driving about 12, 12 miles below the speed limit, and I'm just like, what the heck? And you drive up and they're just this beautiful lady with beautiful gray hair. I'm like, God bless you. You know, like, you know, you know I, I just don't want God to, to, to knock me down. Be, uh, you are amazing, you know? He's just actively putting the lonely in families. These are the descriptions of, of who God is. And I believe it's because God's desire for us is to know that our entrance into his kingdom is an invitation into spiritual family. And then that begs a question. If God chose the framework of family for our kingdom of heaven to run through, why did he choose that knowing that it would eventually fracture and shatter? And I don't mean like just in our day. I mean, they don't make it three to four chapters into Genesis before it starts happening. Genesis chapter three uh, you see Adam and Eve have the fallout, so there's blame and shame and ego, and they have a marital fallout in chapter three. In chapter four, we got any parents in the house? I mean, we all talk about the ups and downs of our parents, of our parenting. We are in chapter four when one mom and dad have to look at each other knowing that their son killed the other son. Just if you think about that like you've never heard it before. That's the first family. It's, it's, it's wild to think this man, Cain, he kills this, his brother, Abel. But it seems to just keep painting this prophetic picture, this tension. This is what God wants for us. Family where it's safe and there's joy and you can run back here and try and try again and there's purpose and then also there's pain and loss and it is beyond imagination at times. So no wonder that when we get to Malachi, this prophet, he expresses this heart of God in very strong language in Malachi chapter four. It says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah. We know that he was prophesying Elijah would be John the Baptist who was going to come and he was gonna be a foreshadow before Jesus. And I'm gonna send Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. I mean, you see him saying, my heart, is for family to come together. And that's why I said before, when family is working right, there is nothing like it. But when family is working wrong, there is nothing like it. And in a room this size, and for all those that are following along with us at home as well, I, I just realize that the word family has a ton of different connotations to it. For some, it is a place of great joy and purpose you just kind of wish that there were all more times for y'all to be together and you just enjoy each other and you rush back home and it's such a place of awesome passion. For others, it's like Lucy. You're like Lucy. Like, I don't even really know what it is. 
I've always kind of wanted it, don't quite understand it. Yet for others, I know it's a place of amazing uh, disappointment and wounding. Even just knowing that we were talking about this today, you might have been like, oh man, can we fast forward to ministry time? I don't even really want to go there. And I know that, it, that spiritual family as well can be very, very challenging. Maybe you've been hurt by a spiritual family. Maybe you've been hurt by our spiritual family here at Antioch. And if so, as an elder at this church, I mean it with all my heart, I am so sorry. None of us planted this church with a passion for hurting people, and, is, you know, and that would be our purpose in the earth. If you got hurt in a different spiritual family, I could cry a thousand tears at the stories I've heard. And I added some of them and I cut them out of my message because we would all be so depressed at the end when we hear about the church and the brokenness of what's going on. But it is hard when you're hurt in a spiritual family to forgive what you can't forget. And it kind of can linger on in the soul. I know that sometimes people might feel like that when we talk about church family, it seems like we're taking a passive aggressive jab that you're never allowed to leave this place or else you're a subpar Christian. So I want you to know, we're not launching this series to see who's in with us and who's not in with us, okay? This is an invitation into the kingdom of God, into a global, greater spiritual family that is connected by the blood of Jesus, held together by the love of Jesus, the word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's not just determined by the four walls of our church. And that being said, God invites you into a local church context, what we call Little C Church, as well as the Big C Church, and we are supposed to function as a spiritual family to help people get a picture of what's supposed to happen in their nuclear family. Why? So that you can be fully known and fully loved, which is what God had in store for you. But I know that this breaks down because all of us have taken a hit in this regard. That's why we're launching this six-week series that myself and others will be participating in. And I do just want to say this message is meaningful to me personally because my family, I grew up, and y'all have heard a lot of my story. It was marred, my family was marred by addiction, and there was dysfunction. And so I ran to the doors of the church. Well, no, it started with my mom dropped me off at the doors of the church. And we were there every Sunday, every Sunday afternoon, every Sunday evening, every Wednesday night. There was choir practice. If there was like Girl Scouts for Jesus, mom dropped us off. Like we were going to be there. But then in, high, in junior high and high school, that turned into my safe place because I didn't want to be at home. And I was that kid. So if you work with youth, I always just take those people that, that work with youth and I'm like, I know it's a challenge for you to have to stop your world and go get into the world of a 14-year-old. You have no idea the long, time, the long play you're making when you do that. Because I was that kid that showed up early and interrupted the prayer time when they were trying to get started. And then I stayed late. And then as the last person was leaving, asked them for a ride home. I was that guy. And it happened over and over and over and over. And then they made me start, if you're going to be here, you have to serve. So I started serving and serving. And then they just made me the youth pastor. <laughs> if you serve long enough, we just hire you. And so then I, I started becoming the youth pastor. I was like, wow, they pay me for this. I think it was like $30,000. But I was like, wow, you know, I get paid to do this. And if you ask my old youth, they'll pretty much tell you I had one about two sermons that came down. One of it was, God puts the lonely in families. And then he takes families and he mobilizes them into armies. And under our heavenly father, we bring the kingdom of earth to repeat that process and change society as we know it till he comes back. 
Next week, what are we talking about? Guess what? I mean, it was just like the same thing over and over as a young preacher. That's all I knew how to say because that had been my story. That's what I've always wanted the story of this church to be, the story of every church that we work with, the, the story of your nuclear family to be. It's what I've always wanted as God's put our family back together. Because all these years later, throughout all the brokenness, um, my story was not a quick scene change that all of a sudden turned into, and now we're driving off on a train happy. A lot of challenge, a lot of pain, even in the last few years. But I still believe that when the spiritual family is working, there's nothing like it. And when Jimmy asked me to kick off this series, I, I was, in part of my preparation, I just wrote in my journal some thoughts about what happens when a church family is working right. And as I was putting this sermon together, I, I turned to Blair and I was like, should I read this journal entry? And so I've added it and cut it three times, but I just added it again. And uh, I just want to read this because this is straight out of my heart. But when spiritual family is working right, teenagers never want to leave. Kids call it the best place on earth. Single parents find a tribe to hold up their arms with them. The helpless find mentors. Former prisoners and inmates find people who see their future, future potential and not their past grievances. And the grieving find others who actually understand. When spiritual family is working right, college students find a bigger purpose than themselves. And every generation rests securely knowing they can be fully themselves without the pressure of having to be something they once were or something they are not yet. And as a result, small groups move beyond Bible studies as members fight for each other's identities and they facilitate vulner vulnerability that is one part beautiful and one part freak you out. And its sum total is deep relationships with history that gets beyond the small talk of Tuesday nights and into the undercurrents of our souls. Now, when this, while this spiritual family has been touched by the divine, it is still overwhelmingly human. So missteps and miscommunications abound. Yet forgiveness flows like a river because the prime sustainer of this family made it clear his love never fails and our love could one day marry his. When this spiritual family is working, those in crisis find people waiting at their door with limited advice and wide open arms. And those who relapse into their addictions find a safe place and yet an accountable one because this family knows how to let you be weak, but we will not allow you to be wicked. Because these people are more bound to their spiritual kingdom than they are to their alma mater, their sports team obsession, their political party, their country, or to any other kingdom this side of heaven. Because while our nationality is based on our geography, our citizenship is found in heaven. And the price of admission was paid only by the blood of Jesus and not by works, so none of us get a chance to boast. And the blood that was spilled for this family was intended for every person from every culture and every region of the world. So my spiritual family includes people across the planet who have bowed their knee to the mighty name of Jesus. So my family includes Afghan refugees, the underground church of China, those from the vibrant Latino nations just south of us, and those in the middle of wars and rumors of wars all around us. Because the truth is, family game nights are fun. Family competition is the stuff that memories are made of. But when affections are having to be competed for in a family, dysfunction is quickly on the rise. But a healthy spiritual family rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who, re who weep. So a win at Harris Creek Baptist Church is a win for Antioch Community Church. A victory for Highland Baptist Church or Christ the King or Renew or Glory Bell or Calvary or First Baptist. It's a home run for the kingdom. It's a win for all of us. So that when a church in town takes a hit, we should all feel it and we should all be slow to judge it because they are all a part of my spiritual family. 
And then when someone leaves my local family and they join another local church, I will probably grieve that I will not see them on a weekly basis, but I rejoice that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. They're not divorcing me. They're just worshiping with them. And we are all on the same team. We all have the same mission to see that every person outside this kingdom family recognizes they too are made in the image of God and they had the same grace of Jesus shed abroad for them. And then one day, this global, holy, all-loving family that started in a garden but was torn apart by sin and shame will reunite in a garden and worship around the throne with people from every tongue and tribe and nation saying, we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not no mercy, but now we have received mercy. So when this spiritual family is working, there's nothing like it. You have a place, I have a place, and the world has a hope. Because upon the rock of Jesus, he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Thank you. Not, don't, don't normally get people clapping for my journal. Um, but I want you to know we're casting this vision that we realize may not be fully realized until the return of Jesus. But it doesn't mean that we still don't move forward and toward that vision by the grace of God, or the power of the Holy Spirit, even in the midst of all of our human failure and our complexity. So over the next couple of weeks specifically, what I'd like us to do as we jump into this series is to go back to the early church and see how they did it. You know, when you're building something, you, you look at blueprints, you keep them right there and you go back to it. So when we have the word of God, it's such a beautiful piece of not just like old writings. It's like we get to go back to the canonized scriptures and go, how did they first do it when they were trying to get it right? And what did they do to get it wrong? And how could we learn from them? And I've spent the last 10 days reading and rereading the book of First Thessalonians. Um, if you don't know this story, it's kind of wild to see it through fresh eyes. And I think it has something for us today. In the remainder of our time, I'd like to talk a little bit about this church and the ramifications of what happened in this church, how they lived out this journal entry beyond what we even know. And if you don't know much about this story, Thessalonians was written to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, today, we call it Thessaloniki. Some of you may have been there when we were serving uh, refugees there. But Thessalonica was actually a port city. And this port city was made a, cap, the ca, a capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. Now, in 42 BC, Rome decided that they needed to make some friends. So what they decided to do was name a few cities that they would uh, call free cities. And these free cities were given complete ability to self-rule. So they get to do what they wanna do in the way they wanna do it. Rome's not gonna hover over you. Thessalonica was one of those cities. So you can imagine, when everybody starts doing what they want to do, it sounds good until it doesn't. And so all of a sudden, express yourself becomes the theme of the day. Do what feels good. You do you. That's not me, that's you, that's fine. That begins to be the creed. Anybody heard that? Last 12 months, where you live? This is individualism at its worst. While individualism is a great thing, God gave us agency, ability to choose, and we have a kingdom that we're supposed to rule, then if we do believe he's bringing us to be a part of a larger spiritual kingdom and a spiritual family, then how does that play out to go from individual to family in the church? Well, apparently, 
Paul and Silas learn a little bit about this. Paul and Silas are trapped in prison. They get out and they head out of town somewhere around 48 to 50 AD. And we learn in the book of Acts chapter 17, they go to Thessalonica. And when they get there, Paul walks into the synagogue and he begins to reason with them that the Messiah had to suffer and come back to life. And here's what happens. We learn all through Acts 17, fascinating study, I don't have time to go into, that as he's there, he is only there for three Sabbath days. Everybody say three weeks. He's there for three weeks. And what we know is that two things happen. People start to fall in love with Jesus. Men, women, leaders, it is like revival is breaking out. And thus, a riot breaks out. Because they're like, hey, they turned the world upside down. Can we get them out of here? And it is problem city for Paul and Silas. And so he has to get out of town. So just, again, don't forget this. He's had three weeks to see if he can get something going. And now he's gone. There's no phones. There's no email, no text. He doesn't have Morse code. Carrier pigeons, I don't know, maybe. There is no way to connect and go, so guys, here's what I want you to make you do. Now, I, over, I just told you, I help oversee 47 churches. Like, I'm just like, all the time, do, do they have everything they need for the right doctrine and the right practices? Do they know how to raise up life group leaders? I get brought in all the time. Does their staff know how to work together? Like, this is what our team does. And it's taken us like decades. I can't imagine doing something for three weeks and going, hope they got it. But you see this in the angst in 1 Thessalonians chapter three, because what Paul does is he sends Timothy. He's over in Corinth, all right? Because they got their own problems. They got to write them two books. And so he is going to send Timothy. He's like, hey, Timothy, they know me. They don't know you. Why don't you go in? So he comes back and he reports to Paul and Silas. This is what he, and so Paul's like, okay, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out about your faith. I was afraid that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labor had been in vain. Timothy's not gonna find anybody. There's nothing left of what we've begun. But instead, what we find is something completely different. He comes back and he starts telling Paul what's going on. And within these two verses we're gonna look at, there is a staggering sentence. And I just want you to see if you re resonate with this. Now concerning love of the brothers and sisters... You do not need to have anyone write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Guys, what does that mean? Paul we know this is one of the first churches he was writing to. You're getting into his heart. He knows they need to love each other. And he's like, okay, we don't have to talk about love. Y'all do that perfectly and you're famous for it. And I don't have to teach you that because God himself taught you that. I have just been waking up and going to sleep going, what does it mean for God himself to teach me how to love? I mean, just for a minute, any elementary teachers out here? Can you imagine going all year long and never having to talk to your kids about what it means to just get along? One year? Coaches, can you imagine going an entire season? Yeah, our junior high football team, they just all sacrifice for each other. I, I didn't teach them anything. They just do it. 
One more time. Where are my parents at? You just, how did you do it? How did you teach your family to love? Oh, he didn't. God himself <laughs> taught him to love. When people ask me what my highlight of the holidays was, it was waking up to learn that my four kids, who are ages 16 to 23, on their own initiative, just went to breakfast together. And they just were together, and I was like, y'all like each other? I mean, when they were little, it had been like, you're going to breakfast. No, I don't, no, no friend is coming. No, just you. Repeat with me. We're best friends. We're best friends. We're best friends. Spanking, spanking. Here's $30. Go to get a breakfast. How did it go? It didn't go well. Spanking, spanking. Okay, God bless you. Okay, what are we doing? We're best friends. Look at them. You're my best friend. I mean, that's what it would have been. And then I had to pay for it. Can you imagine a world where, no, we don't need that. God himself taught us what it means to love. It just blows my mind away that Paul is looking to a group of people who are self-ruled. And he's like, you did not allow the individualism of your day to conquer you. You allowed your God to teach you how to love. And now you're famous for it all throughout Macedonia. And we know Paul's in Corinth going, but the Corinthians, they don't get it. I'm going to write a whole chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love never fails. And so you memorized it because Paul was like, those Corinthians don't get it. But you guys, you get it. So all I want to say to you is just do it more and more. And apparently they did because when you start studying church history, man, I just wish we could stay for about three hours and just kind of walk through what what occurred after that. Because what we know from the Roman Greco world is several plagues began to occur in the 50 to 100 years after what I'm talking about began to happen. There were these plagues that would occur without medicine. It was just devastating. Thousands died. But the problem was those who should have helped fled. There were accounts of this one Roman doctor named Galen who was famous throughout the land. He spotted the the plague, and he bolted and got out of town and he waited at his country estate until it was over and came back to preserve his own life. Romans, these pagan people who did not follow God, found a lot of their medical personnel had fled the scene. It was so bad that Romans were known that if someone in their family got sick, they would shove them into the street and they would rot out in the street and just pile up the, pile up the bodies until they would die. But then there were these Christians and these Christians felt like they had a moral duty to be able to love their neighbor. And so they would love their families and take care of them when they got sick. And then they would love their neighbor. And that meant if their neighbor was a Christian, they cared for them. And if their neighbor was a pagan, they cared for them. And medical history shows that basic nursing practices of care, putting like a rag on the forehead, et cetera, would be a lot of times what someone needed to make it through. Now, a lot of Christians died. A lot of Romans and pagans died as well. Christians were drastically outnumbered by the Romans but they began to, in many ways, explode during that time because their lives physically were being preserved. And then the Romans were watching this and beginning to go, I think we want what you have. And so a move of God began to happen among, among these Romans. And this began to spread all throughout the empire. There was a, a writer named Tertullian. He was an early church father, historian. And he, he said this in those early days. We had that quote, Look, they say, how they, the Christians, love one another. It seems like it didn't just stay kaput there in Thessalonica. It spread out. For they, the Romans, hate one another. And how they are ready, but yet how they, the Christians, are ready to die for each other. But the Romans are readier to kill each other. 
This is early church fathers going, this is what it was like to live in our world. And so over time, Christianity begins to go on the rise. Paganism begins to go on the decline. And so one writer wrote this, this phrase, I love it. What went on during the epidemics was only an intensification of what went on every day among Christians. And it kept going that at one point we have documented uh, facts that the emperor pulled together all the pagan priests and said, I need you to start competing with the Christians and start serving the way they serve and love the way they love because they're kicking our rear. That's the Carl version of the Roman uh, edict that went out. This, this blew me away as I watched that this wasn't just cute verses that you can memorize in your little devotional and take a little Instagram picture of in 1 Thessalonians 4. This was supernatural love that began to transform society. This is what I'm talking about. The beauty of the church that is a transforming agent. It's created by God and for God. It becomes a spiritual family on mission. It transforms society. And when it's done right, there's nothing like it. How many of you would like to be a part of something like that? I would. That's what I signed up for. That's what I want to be a part of. And the problem is, you know probably what I'm worst at in life? That. Just love. Blair and I were preaching at the Harris Creek Marriage Conference yesterday. We weren't preaching. We were on this panel. And I just confided in them that on Monday night, we were on date night. Because they made this comment like, y'all have a great family, and y'all have been together, and y'all like each other a lot. So y'all kind of figure out the marriage thing. Y'all got it down. And I was like, well, we were on date night on Monday night. And Blair said, can I ask you something? And I said, sure. She said, I just wondered if maybe at the end of the day, if you would ask me how my day is. I was like, what? She's like, well, you get in the car and then you talk about your day and then you're out of words and you're tired and don't want to talk anymore. I wonder if you could just ask me about how my day went. <laughs> I thought, I am overseeing churches, trying to raise up church planners and martyrs for Jesus and I don't know how to ask my wife, so how was your day? I mean, so it's obvious as I get older, I still am having to practice. So I had to practice every day I came home and was like, how was your day? She's like, you're so nice. And I was like, I think that the pagans do that. You know, like I, I'm just trying to catch up to the pagans. I'm just trying to show you family, love, it doesn't come natural. It might, that might come natural to you if you're nice, but the goal of Christianity was never to be, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> but the goal, the goal of Christianity wasn't to be nice. I'm not looking for those nice people, but love is a supernatural thing. And, but to get there, I'm gonna have to practice. So I had to practice coming home every day. How was your day? By the way, kids, teenagers, when's the last time you asked your parents how their day was? If you do, your parents are telling their friends, I've got this one kid, and every day they ask me how they're doing. The other three, they have no idea I exist. <laughs> so I'm just trying to make this real practical. When we talk about being a spiritual family, we're taking care of plagues and you know, all that stuff. Like, Do you love people around you? It will not come natural. It will be supernatural. Your niceness will eventually run out, and it will require practice for you to actually put this into practice in your life. What I'm trying to say is I would hate it for everybody to run out after this sermon or series and say, this week I'm going to try really hard to be loving. Because trying will eventually, at least from my experience, what I'm learning, trying will lead to failing. Failing will lead to guilt, and then guilt will lead to forgetting. However, Paul never told us to try really hard. He actually tells us in 1 Timothy, he tells us to train yourself in godliness. Can we say train? Train. 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 So 
Meaning, like if I said, and when we're done today, we're going to walk outside, we're all going to do a marathon for 26.2 miles. There's maybe like in a room this size, maybe 50 of y'all could do that because you've trained it, but the rest of us would die. And we'd just make that whole epidemic in Rome thing a real life story. But if we all spent the next four months training, we could shock the world and run a marathon, even though I hate running with all my heart. We could do it if we trained. I say that to say us being a spiritual family will not come natural because we signed up for Jesus. We didn't all sign up for each other. And we all have our different personalities as well to add on top of that. So some of you, you come alive in a smaller, quieter, simple environment. Living rooms, backyards, small group, history, vulnerability, that's where you find life. To walk into this big building and to experience the lights, camera, action, and thousands of people you don't know, it is a deliberate act of love every week. Training. You are choosing to train when you walk in the door, if I just described you. Now, I know who the other group is because they're like, there's people like that? You're the life of the party. You love the big group. You love the energy. Or you might like to sit in the back so that nobody actually sees you and calls you on your junk. And if that's the case, then you'll be more up at the front like, why doesn't everybody come to church? Why didn't after the pandemic everybody come back? This is amazing. And you're like, we need the church, but you're an ENFP. And so they're not listening to you because it actually floods into your personality. So your practice is probably going to need to be to learn to get in a small group and learn to love and learn to be vulnerable and not just go at the spiritual high, but the deepest places. Both need practice in order to be trained into godliness, in order to be trained into the love we've been called to. What I have found is one of the best places to train for that type of love is in a life group. They're not perfect. They're not, they're not always easy to even get into. They're not always easy to find. They fall apart. All that stuff. But, you know, we just have to count it. We just have to regroup. I've been doing life groups since 1993. But, you know, recently Blair and I, had some couples that didn't really know each other, but we knew them, and we pulled them together and said, would you want to start a life group? They're all in their 40s. They've taken some hits. Um, we didn't know each other, so we decided to read a book together. And then I did something. I'm not even sure this is legal zone, Pastor, so sorry I'm saying this. But, but I just said, by the way, we're just going to do this for six months. And then at the end of this, if y'all want to leave, you can. Because we've all been in life groups. We're like, oh, crud, we got to keep going back. So you don't have to. Like, you're welcome to leave at the end of this six months. But the book we read was about finding your identity, and trying to figure out what God says about you and what are those false identity messages playing in your head. And when we started going around saying, this is the false identity message I live with, whoo, this was way deeper than read a verse and ask three questions. That's all good. We need to read verses and ask three questions. I'm causing all kinds of problems for my zone pastors. But, <laughs> but we just began to ask, we just began to do, and I'll never forget, when I vulnerably told that group, Here's what the vulnerable, this is the message that plays in my head about who I really am. One of my friends started laughing and was like, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And it wasn't lack of empathy. He was fighting for my identity. And then it kind of spread. Then we said, we don't really know each other. Why don't you take one kid and share with us about why you named them, what you named them, what's their identity? Are they living it out? What are their, take five minutes, take 30 minutes. It probably took three weeks for us to get through that. And everybody just talked about one kid. But the text thread that week was not about who's bringing snacks, 
where are we meeting? The text thread was people going, I'm praying for this kid. I'm calling him by this identity. I'm calling her this. I'm on your team. You start fighting for people's kids' identities, man, send them a support letter. They'll send you money for the rest of your life. They're like, we are in. You fight for my kid, I'm in. And it was wild as we got to the end of this time. And I said, okay, everybody's free to go, like I said. And you know, the next time we got together, I was like, you're all free to go. And, and finally, my friend Brian goes, Carl, it seems like you need to be free to go. We've all become a family. We'd like to stay together. You are free to go. We'll just keep meeting if you'd like that. It's like God himself taught us to love each other. And I don't know what you need. If you need to get into a group and you need to go, let's fight for each other's identities and let's practice showing up over and over again for each other. Or maybe it's like you just need to go home and ask your spouse or your kid or your dad How is your day? I don't know where it is, but I bet God wants you to be stepping into this practice because you, when you see how this plays out, it brings lots of transformation. But the one God's trying to get a hold of is you. He loves us, so we're able to love. So what he did is he built a practice into our spiritual lives called communion. And he got his disciples together, and at a moment where he should have been sitting at the head of the table, He actually got down on his hands and his knees. He took a a towel and a basin of water and he washed his disciples' feet. And he talked about serving them, loving them. And he took the bread, he breaks it, he takes the cup and he gives it to them. And he says, when you take this, remember me. Some of you have been a Christian for maybe a few months. Some of you for like decades and you have been in some form or another, whether it's every few months, every week, you've been taking this over and over as a practice, remember, remember remember. And so as we come to the end of this time, we're going to take communion together. And we're going to just remember that we were those individuals who were brought into a spiritual family, not because of what we did, but because Jesus, after he did that with those disciples, he took your shame and sin and mine and all the lovelessness and all of the pain, and he went to a cross and he died on that cross. He came back to life and he destroyed the shame of our lives And over and over and over, he told those disciples, love one another. And so it may be that you need to take this communion cup today. As you take that top layer off and you get to the the wafer and then you pull the whole thing back and you'll get to the juice and take that juice. And you're going to do this on your own in just a moment. But it may be that as you take this communion today, you just need to bask in the love of God for you, that he loves you, that he's kind towards you. And let that be what begins to be a supernatural act working towards you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is not for you. This is not an act that you just do and it makes you all good with God. It's actually coming to Jesus, bending your knee, saying, I will follow you forever. I'm done with my sin. And now I want to be an apprentice of you, Jesus, for the rest of my life. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if you do that, then yes, take it. But if not, if you're still waiting then you just get to pause if they sing this song and just say, okay, Lord, what do you have for me? But the rest, we're stepping into a place of practice. And finally, it may be that there may be something between you and another person and your act of love is to repent or your act of love is to say, I'm sorry, I don't know why we always go sideways. I don't want that. Maybe that's just like that. But it's an act of saying, I'm putting Jesus first because my nationality may be in my geography, but my citizenship is in heaven. And I want to practice the ways of that spiritual family. So as you bow your head and close your eyes, Lord, we thank you that you disadvantaged yourself for us 
that you saw the plague of sin and shame in all of us and you didn't flee. You took that plague on yourself and you paid that price we should all pay. And I'm thankful that plague didn't kill you. But out of love, you came back three days later for all of us. And you're still making a way to the, heaven, to the Heavenly Father and you've adopted us into your family. And so this morning, we choose to be those mesmerized by your love, willing to practice your love this week and ask that you would make this a supernatural act in our life. And if there's anything between us and others, would you begin to do that supernatural work in us? In Jesus' name. Just take a few moments and take this communion as you need to, as you do business with Jesus.